Okay, so this is going to be a short one about La Semana Trágica in Spain, 1909, July 26th to August first, uh, second, something like this. Yeah, we're, go, we're going chronological rather than uh, because of its contribution to the outbreak of World War One, which as far as I can tell was just about nil. Yeah, it's more like a contribution <clears throat> to the outbreak of World War Two, right? It yeah, kind of skips over World War One. Spain is Spain is on a different track. It just always is on a different track. It's affected by the wider events, but it's just a little different. A little yeah, different. they're a little early with their dictatorship, and yeah, uh, yeah and then the Spanish Civil War is definitely a huge, huge deal. But we, we wanted to start with a uh, correction and <laughs> apology on my part. So don't ask me how, but I got the name of a French socialist wrong. Uh, his name was, well, let me spell it for you again, G-U-E-S-D-E. Justin was quite correct. That's pronounced Gade. And I don't know why I was calling him Jean. His name was Jules. 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 So Jules Gade, uh, if you are <laughs> ever bored, uh, <laughs> just look up Jules Gade's Wikipedia page just for the photo alone. <laughs> but but we also found at the top of the page uh, a famous quotation about Gade by Karl Marx. So if you didn't hear our last episode, Gade was one of those guys who uh, claimed to represent Marxist principles. Yeah. So and and Lenin did not like him at all. I wasn't that keen on him myself. Uh, but Marx <laughs> had a great a great line. Uh, he accused uh, Gade and another Frenchman, Paul Lafargue, of revolutionary phrase mongering. <laughs> and Engels said that Marx made the following comment: "Ce qu'il y a de certain, c'est que moi je ne suis pas marxiste." So what is cer- <laughs> what is certain is that if they are Marxists, then I myself am not. <laughs> he, he's, Gade was such that he made Marx repudiate Marxism. Quite an achievement. <laughs> quite an so achievement. with that uh, apology and nod to Justin's pronunciation skills done, uh, <laughs> we are going to Spain. Uh, I looked up this episode and found Raymond Carr and Joaquin Romero Maura, which oh, Maura, is an interesting Maura. name, possibly. Ma- possible, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he would definitely have an interest. You guys will know why we, why that name jumped out on us very soon. Um, I was reading an American historian named Joan Connolly Ullman. I'm going to call her Ullman, uh, which if I was following the Spanish uh, convention, I would call her Connolly oh. or Connolly Ullman. But I think in English... Uh, or American, the last last name is the last name, right? I think so. Anyway, so Joan Connolly Ullman, 1968 book, The Tragic Week, A Study of Anti-Clericalism in Spain, 1875 to 1912. So she's studying a very specific phenomenon, and she thinks The Tragic Week is a major instance of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is she has a whole chronology of everything to do with anti-clericalism, anti-clericalism being the anti-religious feeling, the feeling against uh, priests and nuns and that kind of uh, class of people that 
was such a major factor in the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, as you'll see. And this is an outbreak of it. This is a major outbreak of it in 1909. Um, and in a way, that's what Ullman's book is about. It's about how uh, what started as a working class anti-war revolt ended up with you know the burning of a huge number of church institutions mm -hmm. um like it's a it's a interesting way that it starts and a very interesting way that it ends like not not, yeah. not really predictable turns except she sets out to try to show you why why it happens that way um there so she starts a, a chronology in 1833 the period 1833 to 1868 uh which she calls the bourbon monarchy uh, the Bourbons are also in France or something, Dave? Yep. Yep. Yeah. But uh, by 1833, the Bourbons have been overthrown by the Napoleon, uh, right? Or are they back? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, no, they made, a, they made a comeback after Napoleon. Okay. Okay. So they're, they, they're in they Spain and They were certainly not France. very popular because they wanted to go back <clears throat> to, you know, 17... Because <laughs> they wanted to go back yeah. to the 1790s and pretend that... Napoleon and all that stuff had never happened. Right. So there are these things. There are three Carlist wars because Carlos, Carlos the Pretender, uh, tries to become king. Uh, he refutes the claim of Isabel, the Infanta. Uh, we've covered all this, I think, yes. a couple of years ago in our in our uh, civilization series. So if you want to go back to that, you can. Uh, so that's 1834, and in 1834 there are already some convent burnings. Uh, some anti-clerical feeling in Barcelona and Madrid. And there's a royal decree providing for the dissolution of religious orders and sale of their property in 1837. So this is a contentious issue. It comes back and forth, back and forth. Are, are we going to take the church property or are we not? Should we take it? Should we not? Can we take it? And the law is passed and then it's overturned. It's passed and then it's repealed. So this happens uh, watch for this. I'm going to go through the, several in cycles of this. So the first Carlist War ends 1839. There's a second one from 1845 to 1848. And in 1851, there's a negotiation, a concordat. I guess it's a concordato or not a concordat, but between the Vatican and the Spanish state gives the church their rights to their property again. But then the law is passed again in 1855 6 to take their property and in 1859 it's repealed again <laughs> with agree by agreement with the Vatican so the so the government passes a law and then there's a negotiation with the pope and then the pope it's overturned that way so in 1868 there's a military coup attempt and Isabel II leaves Spain so this is what's called this starts what's called the interregnum between 1868 and 1875 so in this period, there's a new constitution. The House of Savoy is in power. Where are they? Do they have something to do with Italy, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Savoy is right on the edge of France and Italy. Mm. And by 1869, mm. it's part of Italy. Uh-huh. And there's a Labour Congress. So in terms of the socialist movement we talked about last episode, there's a Labour Congress in Barcelona. The first national Labour Federation is formed in 1870. 1872 to 1876, the third Carlist War. The first republic is declared in 1873, but it's ended by a military coup, a monarchist military coup in 
1874. Hence the Bourbon Restoration, the period 1875 to 1899. And this is interesting because it's in 1876 that they say Spain begins its Industrial Revolution. So that's almost 100 years after, not quite, but close to 100 years after Britain, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. So again, Spain is on a different timeline. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Antonio Canovas de Castillo becomes the head of government, the prime minister, under King Alfonso XII. Uh, and this period in 1879, Pablo Iglesias becomes the founder of the Socialist Party of Spain. So socialists are active from pretty early. I mean, you know, the, in this sense, they're not behind. No. The socialist, the socialist parties are, are pretty advanced. Um, the liberals under Praxedes Sagasta head the government in the... Fr- for the first time in 1881. And then when the king dies, Sagasta and Canovas, the liberals and the conservatives basically, make a deal. It's called the Pacto del Pardo. The palace is called the Pardo. Um, And so the Pacto of the Pardo, um, by which the liberals and conservatives sort of share power, they share responsibility. They're going to take turns. Yeah, it's called a turno. <laughs> yeah, very gentlemanly agreement. You rule for a while, and then we'll take a turn, and yeah. Yeah, so they've got that part of it figured out. They don't have to worry about any unpredictable <laughs> government changes. Oh, except for the army. <laughs> Hence, 1886 military coup attempt, which fails. Um, and then we have a new party joining the Congress of Deputies with elected representatives, the Republicans. Uh oh. So we have um, liberal monarchists, conservative monarchists, and then Republicans who want uh, Spain to be a republic, uh, which it was for a while, but it's not anymore. Like today, it's a monarchy again, right? Mm. <laughs> Who's the king of Spain? I know the king of Spain once told Hugo Chavez to shut up at a at a public meeting. <laughs> okay. It, be- it became a ringtone. Chavez was talking about Sp- Spain's history in the Americas, and and the king said, "Por qué no te calles?" <laughs> Which is basically, "Why don't you shut up?" <laughs> and both both supporters and haters of Chavez uh, came to love that that yeah. moment. So. <laughs> Uh, Felipe the sixth. <laughs> there you go. Is he old or young? Because if he's old, then it's probably the same guy. Uh, he was born in '68. Mm. Probably the same guy. Same guy. <laughs> Felipe Juan Pablo Alfonso de Todos los Santos de Borbon y Grecia. Oh, he's Bourbon. He's part of the Bourbon Restoration. Yep. Um. So. Republicans, there's a law of associations governing uh, unions, so they're kind of allowed to have unions by 1887. And so the socialist trade union movement forms in 1888. uh, And the Second International, of course, they send people to the Second International in 1889, the first meeting in Paris. Uh, Spain gets universal suffrage in 1890. So, again, pretty advanced in terms of uh, Europe. And get it when 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 different countries get the vote, um, and then there's a whole anarchist bombing thing that mm-hmm. happens in the 1890s, and Spain and Russia are the anarchist what capitals of Europe. It, Italy's pretty busy too, but yeah, Spain's yeah. definitely on time here. Yeah, so there's a there's a bomber that throws a bomb at the captain general in um, 
1893. He gets captured and tor- his name is Paulino Payas. He gets captured and tortured uh, as a revenge for the torture. Santiago Salvador throws a bomb into a theater. In 1896, there's another bomb thrown at the Corpus Christi parade in Barcelona. So it's, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just I go on. By, I thought by the 1890s, torture was out. Uh, <laughs> maybe not in Spain. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, in 1897, there are trials at this Montjuich castle in Barcelona of uh, various anarchist terrorists and labor leaders. They sentence 28 people to die. They end up executing eight of them. And the trials are very unpopular, especially among the socialist movement in Europe. They call yeah. it the, the Spanish Inquisition, the <laughs> yeah. España Inquisitorial, and there are protests uh, in France and elsewhere by socialists. And another revenge, Canovas, this uh, you know long-running conservative prime minister, uh, he, he's he's assassinated by anarchist Michel Antiolillo as a revenge for the Montjuich trials. So, lots of bomb throwing. And the trouble with anarchist, um, this particular strategy by anarchists is, of course, that it's easy to infiltrate and then you don't know who threw the bomb or why. And then the police, you know, there's secret cells, so you don't know who's who and people don't aren't able to develop a reputation. And um, so this is part of why, you know, socialists like Lenin are not crazy about this kind of decentralized secret conspiracy bomb throwing methodology yeah and it also gives the government an excuse to crack down yeah which gives you an excuse to assassinate somebody in revenge and then you know the cycle goes on but it's not really a cycle that leads to socialism (laughs) so no they're not really interested in in it. So uh, so the big moment, though, is 1898 here. This is what sets off a major change because the U.S., this is 1898. If you go back to our Yankee imperialism series uh, at the end of Civilizations um, a couple of years back, there's a series about the U.S.-Spanish-American War and how it, it basically when U.S. acquires its overseas empire, most of these territories are from Spain, Puerto Rico, uh uh, Philippines being the big ones, Cuba, mm-hmm. you know. So this causes a major reflection <laughs> in in Spanish society. Yeah, yeah. Well, in addition to costing Spain most of her remaining colonies, it really showed up the weakness of Spanish armed forces, particularly the navy, and of course the ruling regime. But there are some facts you kind of have to face. Spain was poor. Three, three quarters of the country was uh, arid. I know in our first civilization series, we, we remarked on how many of the explorers and conquistador came from Estremadura, just the name itself, extreme Estremadura. It, it's dry, it, it's arid, there's you know not a lot of prosperity. Uh, when they did industrialize, late, most of the industry was in the north, either in Catalonia uh barcelona or in the basque country the peasants were poor agricultural laborers were ill-nourished and there was a massive wave of emigration 1890 to 1920. Uh, unfortunately the workers who stayed still faced low wages 
bad working conditions, and there were quite a few strikes and riots. Are and the, the people pol- leaving going to the Americas? Like, probably all over, right? Argentina, Mexico. Yeah, whatever. South and Central, mostly. <clears throat> yeah. and, and maybe a few to Africa, but no, I would say the vast majority to the Americas. Uh, and politics didn't help. So, mm-hmm. if you were following that timeline, there were eight successful revolutions or counter-revolutions between 1808 and 1876. And that's not including the Carlist Wars, which, of course, split the country again. And as Justin pointed out, the Constitution of 1876 was supposed to put an end to civil strife. So the church did what they pretty much always do, and they aligned themselves with the conservatives, and that alienated them from the people. And then the conservatives and the liberals had this peaceful rotation deal, which further alienated them from the people. They manipulated elections, they distributed patronage, but that was basically all they did. Like, it's your turn to, you know, fill your pockets, and then a few years later, it'll be our turn. And the only difference between them was that the liberals were uh, anti-clerical, and that's why you have this back and forth on church lands and whatever. And then the king, Alfonso the Thirteenth, uh, meddled and intrigued, and he just made it. He just aggravated the situation, made everything worse. Uh, we have to go back a bit here to Catalonia. So the rivalry between Barcelona and Madrid uh, wasn't just political, and it wasn't just about soccer teams. This goes all the way back. <laughs> To the War of the Spanish Succession in the late, well, basically 1701 to 1713. So there were two candidates for the throne, a Habsburg and a Bourbon. And the Bourbon was the grandson of Louis XIV. So we're going way, way back here. But basically, (laughs) Barcelona and Madrid did what they've done ever since. They took opposite sides. Mm -hmm. So where Madrid liked... The Bourbon, the French prince, uh, Catalonia stood by the Habsburgs. And that means when the war ended, they lost. And not only did they have it rubbed in, but there were reprisals. Now, there were, uh, this thing goes across classes too. Even conservative Catalans had long standing grievances (laughs) against the Castilians in Madrid. A lot of it had to do with the imposition of Castilian uh, language and culture. Yeah, it's a different language, right? Catalan is like a little bit more like French, I guess. Catalonia. Sure. uh, And then Basque is on its own. Yeah, and Basque is another. Yeah. So there's a class thing that uh, Connolly Ullman, now I'm going to call her Connolly Ullman, I can't help myself. Uh, Connolly Ullman talks about where she says, okay, you get, you get, Universal suffrage, workers' politics, um, bringing the masses in, and, but then you get the elites of these parties. Nobody really wants to mobilize on a class basis, so no. it it kind of becomes this: how do you differentiate yourself while well, you take a stand against the church, right? So that's another reason. That's another one of the kind of dynamics uh, leading to the anti-clerical. You know, the yeah, clerical, anti-clerical. You can economy. also take a, a stand against the monarchy. Yeah. So yeah. 
in Catalonia, you have regionalists, and these are Catalans who don't like Madrid. Yeah. But you also have Republicans. And they have a longer tradition of uh, agitation among the working class. And these two groups, regionalists and Republicans, even though they're both <laughs> Catalan, they, they don't like each other and they often fight, compete. Right. Trouble. Yeah. So try to get votes positioning relative to the monarchy, positioning relative to the church, positioning relative to the working class. But that's the, you know, third rail kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So. This is the this is the game for the next 10 years, the decade of reforms leading to our 1909 uh, tragic week. Um, and this on the socialism kind of side of things, uh, there's a law governing factory working conditions uh, for women and minors that passes in 1900. There's a labor congress in Madrid. There's a new anarcho syndicalist labor federation and even the industrialists in Catalan support regionalism so anarcho-syndicalism meaning probably a probably dave i would say a disproportionate number of our listeners know what that means <laughs> <laughs> but just in case uh anarcho-syndicalists believe that you don't need a government but instead you have a free association of producers and they can plan and coordinate their activities without the need for a central coercive body. Uh, if you have, if you remove all the coercion, what you get is people producing, um, you know, for for needs and under conditions of freedom and in free association with each other. So labor unions, not just to get better working conditions from your employers, but essentially to replace the government. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's their that's their eventual goal. So they want to create institutions that they want to start running an economy, uh, you know, right away. And then and then when the time comes, they'll just get rid of the government and they won't they'll discover they don't need it anymore. So not necessarily uh, revolutionary in the sense of, you know, like an uprising or violence. Yeah. And, so and there yet, are. And yet revolutionary in, in fact and in, in intent. Yeah. And uh, and then so that's the the anarcho syndicalism I think is is very much about like building a a new society you know to replace the old one but then there's the anarchist kind of terrorist side of things which is like you do the so they call it propaganda by the deed so you throw bombs you show people how fragile the government is by by doing uh, you know these anarchist actions and then that also shows you know that. The, the government will then like fairly easily collapse after taking a few of these hits. So maybe a flaw, maybe a flaw in the theory somewhere. Um, definitely, <laughs> definitely. That's what Lenin, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Lenin I knew you'd thought. bring Lenin in. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't. I mean, you know, I, I like I said, I, I actually, um, again, listeners who have followed my work know that I'm very sympathetic to anarchism and continue to be, but uh, uh, speaking historically, uh, let's just say it didn't quite happen here uh, the way the anarchists thought it was gonna. Um, let's just stick to the facts and continue. So speaking of anarchists, <laughs> Francisco Ferrer, um, who opens the Escuela Moderna in 1901. And I will talk more about what the Escuela Moderna is and who Francisco Ferrer is. But he's, suffice it to say, he's a he's a educator. He's a rich, uh, wealthy 
a patron of the labor movement and the anarchist movement. Um, at the same time, Alejandro Leroux uh, becomes the leader of the Republican movement in 1901, and the liberal Sagasta government requires religious orders to register. There's a failed general strike in Barcelona in 1902, and in 1903, someone named Maura, I can't remember his first name, I don't have it written here, but Maura uh, forms a conservative government in 1903, repeals the latest attempt to make religious orders give up their property in 1904, uh, resigns the same year. He's replaced by a conservative named Villaverde, who also resigns. The Liberal Party comes back. There's elections again in 1905. I should also mention in 1904, there's a crop failure and a famine in Andalusia. Which, which often so. contributes, right? Yeah. yeah. So. so the regionalists and the Republicans often uh, don't see eye to eye. But in, in 1905 and six, though, they, they found common cause. The, the Spanish army wanted a special law passed to govern offenses against their honor. This is after a, a cartoon in a Catalan journal had made fun of them. <laughs> so, so again, hey, here, uh, Spain is on, on track, same as France with their Dreyfus affair. It's the yes. army and, and the rest of the country. So now the regionalists and the republicans began talking. Because if we, you know, we, we don't necessarily agree about the church or the monarchy, we can agree about the army. <laughs> but the workers were kind of puzzled when their leader, Nicolas Salmeron, a respectable lawyer, uh, proposed an alliance with Francisco Cambo, a self-made financier, and the regionalist right. So now the workers are thinking, wait a second, we don't want to cooperate with those guys. And they, some of them started looking for new leadership. And as you say, there'd been an epidemic of, of bomb throwing. And uh, Barcelona had been pretty socialist and anarchist since the 1870s. Yeah. But now the anarchists are beginning to be more influenced by French syndicalism. Mm -hmm. And they started to think that a revolutionary general strike yeah. might be the way to go. Uh, and the anarchists, they're, they're not a powerful party. They make a lot of noise, but they're more of an irritant than anything else. Yeah. And the socialists were even less influential. Uh, we, we talked about the great socialist debate on tactics. Spanish socialists didn't want to destroy the state. They wanted to capture it. Right. And this difference in outlook makes it impossible for the socialists and the anarchists to cooperate. They did agree on anti-clericalism. Let, let's, <laughs> let's give them that. But, you know, so in the view of both groups, Spain was poor and backward because of the church, because education was in the hands of the church. Yeah. And here's where your Francisco Ferrer comes in. He's a free thinker. Uh, he's got a financial backer, an elderly female admirer, uh, and she funds his foundation of modern schools, yeah. which scandalized the clergy. The bishop, of, <laughs> the bishop of Barcelona advised his flock to send their sons to a brothel rather than a modern school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's getting a little heated over there. Oh my uh, gosh, it's getting a little heated. Uh, there, Ferrer organizes a rationalist education demonstration in Barcelona. It's fairly successful uh, in in 1906. Uh, and at that same year, 1906, an- anarchist Mateo Morral throws a bomb at uh, King Alfonso's wedding party. He's marrying a German princess, I think. Um, and he, uh, this is a big bomb, Dave. This is this bomb kills 24 people and wounds 107 people. So, yeah, so like a lot of bombs, yeah, that they set off are usually. This is a big bombing. Um, so rather than be captured, Morral commits suicide. But Francisco Ferrer is arrested as an accomplice. And they basically use this bombing as a as a reason to go after the school. So they permanently close the Escuela Moderna. They say, you know, this is these are the ideas that motivated the terrorist Mateo Morral. Right. <laughs> and therefore, Ferrer is to blame and, and modern education is to blame. So he was released, though, a year later, 1907. Yeah. And that's the stage when Alejandro Leroux, uh, a Republican, well, I, my source <laughs> describes him as a demagogue. So <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, let, let's call him a, an activist, shall we? <laughs> anyway, yeah. Leroux uh, rejected Salmeron's alliance with the regionalists, uh, who, who were, most of them, the employers and, you know, therefore the oppressors of the workers. So LaRue called the old Republican leaders dry leaves, and he started to build himself a following. And in December of 1908, he beat the conservatives in the by-elections. So the the atmosphere in Barcelona was revolutionary. Uh, Inflation was really bad and was uh, exacerbating the gap between wages and prices. Uh, the dock workers were crowded into unhealthy tenements. And that meant that they were listening. They were open to newer, more radical ideas. And even the civil governor of Barcelona, uh, Osorio, could feel it. And he warned the Spanish government, it's in the streets. Yeah, It's getting bad. Yeah, so... In terms of like what you would call a class analysis, right? There's a, there's a one of our recurring themes. It's another modernization kind of debate. So after losing the war, they're debating in the Spanish elite, you know, the professionals, the newspapers, the the educated class, you know, what caused the loss? Was it because the church is sucking up so much of our resources? Does Spain need to professionalize the military bureaucracy, change the education system, um, collect higher taxes to finance all this? Uh, is, you know, the church and conservatism standing in the way of the, that modernization? And on the uh, one group, you know, an influential group is the army officers. They want to advance their careers and they you do that. They look around Europe and where do you advance your career as an army officer right mm. now? You go to the colonies, right? So they want to go and deploy in Morocco. They want to get that deployment pay. They want to get those laurels. Um, and there's also a debate between in the opposition between socialists and anarchists. So do we go into the government? You know, do we ele- get elected deputies? Do we take advantage of universal suffrage? Do we prepare for a general strike? 
do we vote? Do we take direct? So the anarchists don't believe in any of this. They call it direct. What they're interested in is direct action, direct violent action, divorced from all political action, to use Connolly Ullman's phrase. She goes on and says, to the extent that they plan for the future, anarchists wanted a new social order in which men would freely organize, not as a body politic, but as an association of producers in an economy geared to need and not to profit. But even the direct action anarchists are divided on the question of revolution. Do we need a revolution or can we just, you know, get whatever we want through direct action? Whenever we want to do something, we just do it. Um, On the economic front, there's a high tariff law in 1907. They're compensating industrialists for losing their colonial markets, which is, you know, on the face of it, you know, it's good for industrialists. They're able to um, buy what they want abroad, machinery and stuff. Their peseta has increased in value. And then they sell what they make in the Spanish market, which is not exposed to competition because there's a high tariff which is cool, except the workers have to pay high prices and they're not making the money to, to pay them. So they have no. a inflation. And also the fact that they're, um, you know, they're not, industrialists uh, are not able to, they have a smaller market, they have a protected market, but they have a smaller market, which means, you know, they don't have as much demand for labor, which means unemployment is also high. So we have inflation and unemployment in Spain, which is like kind of what Europeans associate the Spanish economy to be um, in general. Uh, And there's also, like you mentioned, a lack of housing. uh, Sewage systems are in bad shape. uh, There's like separate worker suburbs um, that are in bad condition around Barcelona. Most of the industry in uh, Spain is in Barcelona and like a few other coastal cities, but like it's mainly Barcelona. And uh, illiteracy, there's no real plan to fight illiteracy. It's between 46 to 57 percent if you looked at different workers' neighborhoods of Barcelona. Yeah. Education is an issue. So there's all these um, all these long term major problems that the society has and the workers don't see a solution coming from the liberals or the conservatives. Well, and no, the government's going to make it worse. Uh, they're going to provide the catalyst. Yeah. And that, that came in the summer of 1909. And again, it's the army. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned Morocco. There had been an attack on Spanish railway workers in Morocco by uh, local tribesmen. And the army called up reservists to serve there. And you've got a great uh, description <laughs> of how this works. I, yeah. I think this is awesome. Go ahead. <laughs> So this is a long quote from Ullman, uh, Connolly Ullman. In some ways, the position of the conscript in Spain was worse simply because of the administration of the system. The law of 1885, amended in 1896, provided for a standing army of 80,000 men, which could be doubled by calling up reserves to 160,000 men within 10 days. The annual uh, army appropriation, approximately 168 million pesetas, represented a substantial portion of the national budget, but did not cover the expenses of an 80,000-man army. The attempt to economize led to chaos, injustice, and military inefficiency. Although 45,000 men were annually eligible for induction, only 30,000 were annually called up. Selection led to numerous abuses, 
Oh, secular. Let, me, let me guess which 30,000 got called up. <laughs> not the clergy. Uh, the well, Not the wealthy. Uh, the wealthy pay an exemption fee of 1,500 pesetas. And then there's a, there's a very interesting system I have never heard of, Dave. Um, workers and, you know, small business owners, they join a mutual insurance plan. You pay a premium. When you get called up, you pay the exemption fee. Oh my and, gosh! <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's like a co-op. Yeah, they have a they have a they have a draft insurance. <laughs> oh my god! This is so counter to the concept of a military draft that I can't even begin to. Uh, anyway, so not great for solidarity, but also the government apparently comes to be um, pretty dependent on exemption fees. It's a it's an important source of government uh, of oh, income dear. to the government. Uh, there's not sufficient funds to keep on active duty the thirty thousand men, so they're called up in February, given three months instruction, and then granted leave for the summer months, sometimes for the balance of their tour. For nine months of a year, an infantry battalion would often be reduced to two hundred and a line regiment to three hundred men. How big is a battalion supposed to be, Dave? Five hundred, right? Thousand. A thousand, yeah. <laughs> And a regiment is what two, three battalions? Yeah, uh, two battalions usually serve, and the third is back in uh, yeah. in barracks to do training and recruiting. So, uh, in an emergency, delays and expense occurred as men were summoned back. Theoretically, a recruit served three years on active duty, although in practice he served only a maximum of two. He's then placed on active reserve for three years, in practice four, and <laughs> in active reserve for six. He's assigned to the same battalion. But whether he's called back to active duty depends on whether his battalion was mobilized. I feel like uh, King Arthur's going to tell me to be quiet now <laughs> as I read these provisions. Be quiet! <laughs> Will you shut up? Uh, <laughs> that so was anarchist, actually. So if you're actually in the army, you you got to be a peasant. And you've got to feel like a complete loser. Yeah. Because you find out that everybody else... Has paid into an insurance Has found team. a way to, to avoid this. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, nobody uh, told us we could sign up for <laughs> insurance. Meanwhile, the conscription system is mismanaged by politicians who feared that an efficient standing army would prove a constant temptation to politically ambitious officers. A couple of coup uh, attempts will do yes, that for you. Yes. Um, the result was important for national defense and social unrest. It's a skeleton crew. Now, the other thing is, uh, this is also scramble for Africa, right? So yes. Spain in Morocco is worried uh, not so much about the natives, uh, which they should be, um, but they're worried about France because France's position is, you know, if you don't build these railways and help us access these various things that we're investing in, yeah. then we're going to build the railways and we're going to access the things that we're investing in. So part of the part of this whole military operation in 1909 is to show France mainly, but also the other European uh, colonizers that Spain can keep up with their colony. Yeah, you got to have boots on the ground to stake your claim. So a weird situation where the army is weak, but it's granted huge budget allocations. And yet, they don't have the money to pay reservists. So if you are one of the unfortunates who's called up, and you don't have insurance, that means that you're leaving your family behind and you're leaving them destitute. And that provided the opening for the socialists. 
So they denounced the war in Morocco as a capitalist concern. Which, yeah, absolutely it is. <laughs> yeah. So in Madrid... Uh, Population, six, about 600,000. So it's the, the one of the only big cities. Yeah. Women sat on the railway lines to prevent the troop trains from leaving. Wow. And, and the church, of course, found a way to make it worse uh, by having rich ladies distribute religious medals to the soldiers. Yeah, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Yeah, that's going to really help. In Barcelona. Also similar population, 587,000. Uh, the reaction was more violent. Yeah, because Barcelona is a port of embarkation. Okay, so the departure of these conscripts, these poor suckers who are sent off to Morocco, uh, it turns out to be extremely dramatic. Okay, I'm going to read you uh, from Connolly Allman. Even though a majority of the soldiers in the Reus battalion scheduled to embark were Catalan, authorities made no concessions to arouse public feeling in Barcelona. Troops were marched to the wharf right through the center of town, heavily populated by workers, just at 4.30 when Barcelona residents customarily take a stroll on their day off. The crowd encircled the soldiers, who soon broke formation to walk arm in arm with relatives or friends. Officers merely guided the throng to the docks, where Governor Osorio and the Captain General were waiting. Osorio had assembled an enormous police force, which went into action as the crowd approached and forced the soldiers to march directly onto the ship, basically at gunpoint. Um, the spark that set off the violence was the distribution of medals and cigarettes by the society ladies. Some of the soldiers disgustedly threw the medals into the water as men and the women, when and women in the crowd began to shout, throw away your guns, let the rich go, all or none, let the friars go, down with Comillas, who's the you know politician in charge. Military authorities ordered the gangplank raised and the Catalunya, the ship, sailed out to sea while the police dispersed the crowd by firing into the air and arresting key individuals. The events of Sunday, July 18th, had aroused the workers of Barcelona to a fever pitch of excitement. So Maura, the prime minister, the next day, July 19th, this is a week before a tragic week now, he announces, okay, listen, no more new embarkations from Barcelona. We're not going to do that again. That did yeah. not go well. But uh, the anti-war movement, uh, you know, still uh, has new material because there's a war. The war actually starts in Morocco against the so-called tribes of the Rif Mountains in Morocco. Um, they're fighting Spanish troops on the 18th and they're beating them. So there are big protests on the Rambla. The Rambla is this gigantic walkway. If anyone's ever been to Barcelona, it's, you know, it's a great place to, to go for a stroll. You really it's have a very, to. Yeah. Incredibly wide. No cars. Goes on forever. Um, Markets. Cobblestone. Yeah. Architecture by Gaudi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I loved uh, I, I went to Barcelona. I don't know. Maybe 10, 10 years ago. Just uh to visit it was pretty cool um so there so there's a big protest on the rambla um and they're they're talking about they're distributing literature about how the spanish are losing uh, the war too so losing a war is also always fuel for an anti-war movement right yeah and then a miracle happened the socialists and the anarchists finally agreed uh <laughs> to combine and to call a general strike for the 26th of july uh, the the trams, the streetcars, were run by a conservative 
who had fired all of the union members among his employees and replaced them with uh, scabs, which and they were called blacklegs in Barcelona. Not sure why. Color their pants, I hope. Uh, and the strikers solved that problem by turning the trams over in the streets. <laughs> so within a day, Barcelona was completely cut off. And, uh, yeah, one particular target of the strikers and the Republicans was the church. They attacked and burned nearly 50 religious buildings, uh, including a number of convents. According to eyewitnesses, the incendiaries, the, the people setting the fires, were mostly women and teenagers. Now, reports say that they took special care to avoid harming monks and nuns they they seem to have taken the approach that they were freeing these people from their <laughs> vows yeah uh corpses were exhumed in the graveyard and examined for signs of ecclesiastical torture so this is pretty long-standing grievances <laughs> that are being dug up here literally uh some incendiaries put on clerical vestments and had a masquerade party uh this outraged conservative opinion yeah. i mean turning over streetcars is bad uh digging up the church graveyard and putting on clerical vestments is beyond the pale uh there's this... another thing they do <laughs> just dancing with like a corpse of a nun oh, apparently great. yeah well, which apparently like, I, I heard stories of that during the spanish civil war too it's like what a weird Anyway, yeah. Well, long-standing grievances, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm it made sure, the, sure the, I'm that sure the church started pain. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just guaranteed that when repression came, it would be especially severe. Yeah. So uh, here's some long-term stuff about this anti-clerical issue. So the education issue is a big part of it. Barcelona in particular has 43 secular schools. This is the capital of industry. It's the capital of secularism. Outside of Barcelona and the entire rest of the country, there's 67 secular schools. All the rest are religious. So that's like hundreds or thousands of other schools that are religious. Um, and a lot of the middle class professionals go through the secular school system and they uh, and many of the workers' leaders are, of course, also anarchists. Um, Ferrer, Francisco Ferrer, he's the, this Escuela Moderna. This was um, part of a wider European movement, and the, the relationship between anarchism and education is, uh, you know, there's something to it. There's something there. Um, Ullman says, in France and Italy, anarchists had begun to stress the importance of school as an agency for preparing individuals who would replace the authoritarian state with a new society. This was part of the general reorientation of anarchism, which coincided with the rapprochement with the bored intellectuals of the fin du siècle, the end of the uh, 19th century, eager for a cause requiring dramatic action. In practical terms, this meant that the revolutionary implications of libertarian education were often played down in favor of an emphasis upon the need to free all men from traditional concepts of society, family, and prosperity. Thus, Ferrer's Escuela Moderna, an adult um, education program, had their counterpart in the movement centering around Luigi Fabri's Universita Populare journal in Italy and Sébastien Faure's La Rouge School and Université Populaire in France. These uh, parallels reinforced the opposition to Ferrer within Spain. 
they said he was an anti-Catholic Mason. He was a Freemason, apparently. Um, sedition and school breeding sedition in schools. And then here's a here's a little nasty little comment about Ferrer made by Almond. She says the general opinion of those who worked with Ferrer was that his abilities were mediocre, but that he was passionately dedicated to a secular education system, which stressed anti-authoritarian and anti-clerical ideas rather than knowledge itself. Um, it's interesting because the Escuela Moderna has high tuition. Working people can't afford to go to this school. Um, so they want to teach teachers who can then teach workers. The idea of a school that teaches teachers is called a normal school. Day, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, is in <clears throat> French too, right? I know that's true in Spanish. Ecole normal, yeah. yeah. It, it, it was for a long, long time. I was in a town in central Illinois, normal, normal Illinois, <laughs> which might strike you as really odd until you find out that's where the teacher's college was. Ah, okay. It's not like a desperate need to not stand no. out. <laughs> no. Um, so the Escuela Moderna had some success, remember, like in 1901, they had 70 students. By 1905, 175. Their textbooks were adopted elsewhere in Barcelona and Catalonia. They had influence in, by by the time it was closed, 34 schools and a thousand students total. Um, many of these schools, Alman says, consisted of little more than a sparsely furnished room located in a political or labor center and were taught by a teacher with little or no professional training. The success of such schools was a reflection of a desperate need and desire for education among workers to which organizations of every type attempted to respond. And the, the main organization that responds is the church. And a lot of their people in the church are employed in education. A lot of them make a lot of their money is made in education. So this is like a, a kind of a head to head battle over the education sector between, uh, you know, anarchists, uh, but also any kind of modernizers and the church on the other hand. So it's a really passionate issue and it leads to this passionate response, something that starts as an anti-war protest in a workers' strike that ends up really, really um, taking it out on on the church. Maybe we should do a history of education at some point. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Because it helps you understand why you have uh, essentially conservative governments who are so interested in tinkering with yes. the curriculum in schools, right? Look at yeah. the states now. Let's say it's India, India right now. Is even 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 in in Canada, this has been going on for a long time. Conservatives, they want uh, obviously uh, intelligent army officers, and they want technicians. So yeah. they promote the uh, teaching of math and science, and uh, make sure that there's not too much history, yeah. or or that it's patriotic history rather than well the kind of stuff we're bringing up now. Don't know students knowing that they might get anarchist ideas. So the movement uh, spread into the towns of Catalonia from Barcelona, and it spread easily because the government was so inept. Uh, the minister of the interior uh, basically abdicated responsibility and transferred power from the civil governor to the army. The local army commander was new to his post and completely ignorant of the geography and layout of the city of Barcelona. So he's got to go in and restore order and doesn't know what the city looks like. Uh, the troops under his command didn't want to shoot civilians. 
Uh, and at this stage, the conservative classes were still largely inert. They, they weren't doing anything. Uh, in the city, workers stormed the bakeries and the gun shops. Uh, get, make sure you got bread. And yeah. Uh, they put up barricades in the streets. There were snipers patrolling the rooftops. And the army had to call in reinforcements. After four rather ineffective days, the army lost patience. They announced that they would shoot anyone they saw in the streets. And that still didn't work. They weren't making any progress. So the general brought in light artillery and started bombarding the wide central avenues, I imagine including the Ramblas. Uh, the last pockets of resistance were finally eliminated. So how does the government explain what happened? Well, they adopted a conspiracy theory to explain <laughs> the strike. It wasn't a spontaneous outburst, even though Governor Osorio had warned them about it. Instead, they saw it as the work of a, a small group that had directed the strike and the burning of the convents. And in that sense, they're completely wrong. There, <laughs> there were no conspirators. Uh, LaRue's Republicans took advantage of uh, the chaos in some areas to declare a republic. Yeah. But they they withdrew very quickly after that, like a matter of a couple of days. Socialists and anarchists had only planned a 48-hour general strike. Right. And they even proposed setting up a group of volunteers to protect churches and convents. Like they, <laughs> they knew this was going to happen, right? Yeah. And many of the militant Republicans blamed their leaders for not taking control and providing more direction. So the government is completely wrong. It wasn't a revolution led by a, a tight group of conspirators. It was a protest movement that got out of hand. And it spread because the feeling among the grassroots was so strong yeah. and because the military was so inept and couldn't deal with it. Mm -hmm. But the government said it was a conspiracy, so we have to find conspirators. And they found <laughs> one. Oh, Francisco. Yeah, they found Francisco Ferrer, who had had no part whatsoever in La Semana Tragica. He was actually in England at the time, <laughs> but never mind. He was back in Spain, so they arrested him. On October 13th, he was shot. Yeah. So Alman thinks he was there, I think. So, um, but uh, yeah, she. So towards the end of Alman's book, it gets like hour by hour, day by day. Like in this meeting, this leader said this. In this meeting. Francisco did that so I think he was not I think he was not he may not have been there from the 26th but he was there like just before or something so here's here's what here's what I've got from from Alman about Ferrer's activities um, during the week uh, he says uh, in the where are we in the ensuing debate half century of impassioned debate of whether Ferrer was in fact the author in chief of the rebellion. That's what they accused him of. One matter has too often been obscured. No popular explosion of the magnitude and intensity of the tragic week is the work of one man. 
The complexity and savagery of the underlying causes frightened Spanish society, which sought relief by discussing the events in simplistic terms of good versus evil, society versus anarchy, and by making one individual bear at least the moral responsibility for the events. So um, he comes to Barcelona from his farm to discuss the problems with leaders of the labor movement and um, uh, newspaper people, so on. So uh, he first he, his first stop is Miguel Villalobos Moreno, who is his contact in the <clears throat> labor central Solidaridad Obrera. Through the previous week, Ferrer had followed the preparations from, for the anti-war demonstration through the enthusiastic report sent to him by Moreno. So he's not on the scene, right? Um, Moreno did play a role in launching the general strike. Um, the socialist member of the strike committee did not know about these contacts or thought them unimportant. So Moreno's waiting at the railroad station when Ferrer arrives at 8.30 a.m. They talk about the plans for a new rationalist school, primarily for the benefit of Ferrer's police escort who stood nearby. So he's under complete surveillance at this time. They move to a far, the far side of the station where they discuss the strike. Moreno triumphantly showed the older man a copy of the editorial, remember, as proof of the radical willingness to collaborate in the movement. Ferrer, still skeptical, tried to bring his friend to his senses. He reminded him of past deceptions practiced by the Radical Party and of its recent conflict with Solidaridad Obrera over the typesetter's strike, expressing the doubts that the radicals would now work for this with the syndicalists. So there's a there's a intra-left uh, disunity, right, which um, Ferrer is worried about. He says, what if the secret purpose of the radical leader Iglesias is to cause us to blunder? Moreno said, for better or worse, it's already begun. Ferrer said, look, if there was a serious movement that was going to lead to anything, it has all my sympathy. But if it was going to be a flash in the pan, I regret it. They agree not to meet again that day. Ferrer then goes to his publishing firm and discusses his doubts with Cristobal Litran, his business manager and an official of the radicals Casa del Pueblo. He visits print shops, photo engravers. Uh, undoubtedly concerned with the need to provide an alibi for his activities. He stopped repeatedly to discuss the day's events with acquaintances, for he still believed there was not a proper ambiance for an uprising. So they're debating the revolution question um, during the strike. He says because events uh, in central Barcelona were moving at a slower pace than the suburbs, he goes, he's going everywhere to the union leaders and telling them they're not, it's not revolutionary conditions. They tell him just, shut up and stop being so defeatist. Uh, so he leaves uh, Barcelona at 1.30 a.m. And he tells his last words to his colleague as he leaves are, don't deceive yourself. No party is going to carry a revolution. There's nothing here, nothing. Believe me, drop all political adventures and devote yourself to working seriously on behalf of education. And I guess that's when he goes to England or somewhere else. Uh, and he comes back after the events. So when um, when it all is said and done, um, they three clergy are killed in the events, two of them deliberately. Eight members of the police or army are killed, 124 wounded, four members of the Red Cross killed, 17 wounded, and 104 civilians died, uh, probably 300 plus wounded treated in clinics. Uh, quite a few. Um, uh, so the government arrests, detains about 3,000, formally arrests about 990 and executes some of them, quite a few of them. And so here's like a list of some of the people that are executed. The first four men executed for the crime of treason uh, in order of their deaths. 
Jose Miguel Barro, leader of the rebellion in San Andres on August 17th, Antonio Malet Pujol for burning the furnishings of a church in a remote village and firing against the armed forces, August 28th, Eugenio de Hoyo, the security guard who fired on an army detachment, September 13th, and Ramon Clemente Garcia, the coalman who had danced with the corpse of a nun for having helped to build a barricade. Not one of these men was accused of having killed anyone. Not one of the incidents had been of decisive importance in the rebellion. None of these individuals was prominent in political circles. So they're kind of like symbolizing, they're executing people to symbolize like these are the crimes that, you know, that we take seriously. Well, there was definitely one significant result uh, of all of this, of the Semana Tragica. Conservative Prime Minister Maura believed that the government had to firmly resist the revolution. Right. The non-existent revolution. Yeah. King Alfonso and the opposite opposition leader, the liberal Moret, uh, disagreed. Yeah. They thought that a violent crackdown would only feed the revolutionary forces. So the king, who intervened in politics frequently, decided to sack Maura and divert Republican anger away from the monarchy kind of, you know, blame the conservatives for this. And the liberal uh, Moret took over as prime minister. There's incredible detail on all of these machinations. Also the trial, transcripts of the trial, uh, you know, finding out who was where and who said what in in Ullman's book. There's also a conspiracy theory that that went around about Ferrer. Uh, Check this out. Uh, The conspiracy theory is that they did all this, the radicals, to get a republic proclaimed so that they could make money shorting the monarchy's state bonds and creating a drop in the stock market. Um, and, you know, there's it's impossible to prove this, obviously, but no. uh, it turns out Ferrer is, has amount, had amassed a fortune through smart stock moves during bad times. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I think this might be also like... Um, you know the the basis of like Moriarty, right? Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, villain Moriarty. He's always doing like political agitations to try to benefit financially. That's like one of his, his things. He, okay. He uh, so, um, f- uh, so quoting Alman, uh, army officers investigated the charges but found them difficult to prove or disprove. Stock prices had declined sharply both because of the war and disorders in Catalonia. When questioned about the possibility that individuals had profited from this decline, stock exchange officials could reply only that they had no record of a large-scale operation by registered brokers, but they pointed out the transaction could have been handled through unofficial stock agents in Barcelona or through exchanges located in other cities. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. well, you know. Okay, I I think the more the more obvious. Uh, and more influential by far uh, consequence of this not a revolution was what happened with the prime minister, uh, Maura, because he never forgave the king or the liberals for sacrificing him, for making him a scapegoat. And that's the end of the friendly sharing power (laughs) arrangement that we have. The conservative split. Yeah. And uh, Larue, the the uh, 
the demagogue in Barcelona, he said that that they torpedoed the monarchy by their resentments and quarrels. Uh, Alfonso the king had to intervene more and more often to try to form a stable government coalition. And so he was accused of meddling for his own ambitions. The unrest in Barcelona didn't end. From 1917 to 23, Barcelona was the scene of some of the bitterest labor struggles in Europe. There were frequent strikes and there was a, an anarchist union, the CNT, who fought a running street war with gunmen employed by their employers. So the bosses had their gunmen, the anarchist union had theirs, and you had shootouts in the streets. Crazy stuff. And all of this eventually led to, you know, complete uh, discrediting of the king and to a successful coup that led to a military dictatorship by Miguel Primo de Rivera. He was the dictator of Spain from 1923 to 1930. And then the king abdicated in 1931, and you had the Second Spanish Republic, which didn't last very long because the Spanish Civil War began in 1936. And and guess who was on the opposite <laughs> side of the republic? Could it be the Catholic Church and the army? Yeah. So bad, bad, bad news for Spain, all coming out of this overreaction to a general strike that got out of hand. I mean, I, I wonder what would have happened if they hadn't gone after the churches. Yeah, Alman says something. Well, yeah, that's that's on the uh, the protester side. Um, but Alman also says, you know, the wise thing to do would have been to just let them protest and, you know. They would have certainly burned out. They were not. This it was not a pre-revolutionary situation. Uh, yeah, Ferrer was right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they could have just let them protest. But uh, okay, so that's it. I mean, we're we're you know, it's only been a year and a month, and we're now done. The distant causes of uh, World War One. <laughs> Right, and we'll try to do the immediate causes in one or two episodes. (laughs) Sounds good. Okay, stay tuned, everybody.